Hello, you lot, and a very happy new year. 2021 has been a pretty lousy year, I think it's safe to say for, for most people, um, but something positive did come out of it, uh, for me in any case, because in the early summer I started this podcast and it's been incredibly rewarding on both an emotional and a creative level, um, not on a financial level, <laughs> um, but um, also it's, it's meant I've met some terrific people along the way, uh, some of whom have, have guested on the show or have regularly sent messages of support to me on social media. Um, you all know who you are and, and thank you so much. The podcast is now up to episode 32, uh, which only dropped a day or two ago um, when I was talking to Toby Haydock about the Scarlet Capsule and a lot of other stuff, including the play he wrote about Spike. Um, and in, in the six or so months that this podcast has been going, it's uh, clocked up nearly 7,000 downloads, which is extremely gratifying and encouraging. And thank you so much to all who've helped get the podcast to this point. Now then, uh, regular listeners will have heard Joe Wisby of the wonderful Beatles Books podcast when he joined me back in November to talk about the epic three-part BBC Arena documentary, The Peter Sellers Story. We received a ton of positive feedback. And just the other week, Joe actually dropped me a line to say he'd been in contact with the director of that documentary, Peter Lydon. And Peter said he'd be happy to talk to Joe about the making of the Peter Sellers story, uh, you know, with loads of behind the scenes gossip and, and, and general stuff, which will, will be of immense interest to listeners to this podcast. Uh, Joe, in his guise of goon pod, roving reporter, uh, with the word scoop written on a bit of card and tucked into his trilby hatband. Uh, Joe spoke to Peter for about 40 minutes or so, and we thought it would be a nice bonus episode to welcome in 2022. And I uh, hope you enjoy it. Peter Lydon, hello. Welcome to Goon Pod. Uh, how are you? How do we find you today? I'm pretty good, actually. Yeah. Just recovering from a trip to Bangkok, bizarrely, where I was shooting a commercial for a cryptocurrency platform it's sort of a thing that just came out of nowhere and uh, went there you know within like a week's notice and it was amazing amazing you know great place to work a fun project but it took a week to get over it <laughs> well um we're back now in uh, the, the rainy confines of a december yes. afternoon in the uk yeah. and we're gonna reach back into your memory and our listeners memory and talk about the 1995 arena film, the Peter Seller story. Before yeah. we do that, I think it would be interesting to get a little bit on your background with the goons and with yeah. Sellers as a whole. When did yeah. they first come into your life? Well, in truth, when I was approached to do the documentary, this Peter Sellers documentary, at that point, I was, uh, we're talking about the early 90s, and I was... At that point, I was a documentary maker, going through various transitions in my life. I was a documentary maker. I'd worked on The Late Show, the BBC, and had a particular relationship with various people within the BBC. And therefore, I was a good candidate for this project. And really, I just sort of thought, Peter Sellers. Now, what does that mean to me? And to be honest, I think like a lot of people, I thought of Peter Sellers as, as the Pink Panther character. And I thought, oh, Inspector Clouseau. But the... 70s iteration of Inspector Clouseau. The goons were a bit of a distant memory, you know, so when I was 
it, 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 I, I was a, a young kid in the 60s, so I was aware of them. I was probably aware of the TV show. Whether I was able to make all those sort of connections in my mind between sellers and, and therefore, in truth, sellers didn't mean as much to me at that point as he became you know, it was it was like okay, uh, let's have a look at this and dive in, and and obviously the huge attraction was that uh, there was this treasure trove of home movies. That was the whole raison d'etre of the project or the focus of the project, and and I just thought, wow, you know, you you don't often go into a biography with this enormous amount of material, which out of which you're going to sort of weave a story. So I then had to have a deep dive into sellers the sellers history and obviously very very quickly realized what an incredible body of work what an incredible diverse body of work and and then alongside it starting to learn more about the gar- the man himself and realize wow this is a, this is a messy but fascinating life and uh uh here we go you know it's a bit of a ride really how were you approached to do the film did you have any reservations about it when you were first approached? There's, there's a lot of interesting material uh, floating around about how this documentary came into being. And I don't know how much you have sort of dug into it. Before I got involved, not long after Sellers died, various people who had access to the material were trying to create something about his life. Part documentary, part drama, scripts had been written, uh, people, you know, money was changing hands, rights were bought, deals were done between uh, Lynn Frederick and the powers that be. But it was a very, it was a very fractious period and, and it just kept falling apart. Uh, yeah, so it was a very kind of, I mean, I didn't realise how tumultuous it was until I kind of stepped into the breach. And at that point, it was an independent project for Chrysalis were making it as a one-off film for the BBC. And, but it was quite tricky. And I, and, and, I mean, I very quickly saw that it's, it wasn't one film. It's got to be more than one film. And, and I think what was interesting was that I don't think Chrysalis, the people there, they saw it as a, as a traditional biography that happened to have home movies. But they quickly became entangled and, and, and in, in the kind of mess, and which they couldn't they couldn't kind of undo the the pre existing conflicts that were going on in the politics. And I can't really get into it, mm. uh, but there were th- there were certain players. Uh, his his last wife and and a, a another person were kind of uh, like at war really. And what then happened is the BBC. At some point, I, I think I even walked away from it at some point because it was so messy. And mm. then Arena, who were who were peripherally evolved, involved, became central to it. There's a, a guy, two guys at Arena, Anthony Wall and Nigel Finch. Nigel Finch is no longer with us, but Anthony Wall still is. And he, he, he they're both sort of legends in terms of factual program, arts documentaries. And and they came in and said. If we make if we make this film as a BBC production, and we get you guys who are at war to sort of step aside and agree that neither of you will have anything to do with it, uh, we think we can pull this off. And they and and that's what they did. They basically kind of 
got the people the, the, the two people who are kind of really causing a problem to agree that if the other one wasn't involved the film could go ahead and um and so i was in the middle of that uh sort of re-inherited the project and then was able to say to anthony there's more than one film here and he said i'm sure you're right and the beauty of it being an in-house bbc project is that there was a freedom to say let's see what this is you know let's see what it is let's see how big it is and let's you know we can go with it we can expand the slot or slots and and the beauty of that was there was a there was a certain point down the way quite soon I, I turned around to Anthony and said there are three programs here you know it's a trilogy and arena were quite like trilogies it has a nice ring to it you know and it felt like the right thing. And he immediately said, great, you know, let's go for it. And it felt like Seller's life kind of dropped into these three very distinct chapters. Chapter one, which covered quite a long period of time, the post-war vaudeville, soon to be goon, soon to be film star, part one. Part two, the uber film star, very short period, very messy, but fantastically colourful short period in the 60s and then the sort of slow uh, sunset <laughs> you know the sunset years uh, that went from like late 60s to his death mm. uh, which which was his sort of economic renaissance through the new Clouseau and a kind of a and, a, and an artistic blip with uh, being there but but the undercurrent of sadness and decline in a way you needed that space to really explore the life in that way so you mentioned the visual archive there which as we as we know is the almost i would say the heart of the of the film in mm. a lot of ways um mm. if you could talk a little bit about that two kind of questions around that so yeah. that was always going to be the central kind of part of it, it. um yeah. uh, uh, how much was there, first of all? I mean, if you could kind of give us a rough idea of, of how much there, you, you were kind of given and how did you choose the pieces that went into the film? Well, it's a very interesting story in a way. What I would say that they were, they were literally in boxes, you know, like several boxes of material. I mean, I think I would say it's hard to say how much, probably 100 hours of material, let's say. Uh, you know, I'm just plucking, plucking a figure there. But a lot of it appeared to be unusable in terms of what we wanted to do, you know. But I think what was really interesting, and this is a, a testament to Arena and to Anthony Wall as a storyteller, as someone who's who specialised in telling unorthodox stories in unorthodox ways, is that I, I approached the material, initially I approached the material as, Okay, how do we how do we tell Sellers' life story, and and which bits of this archive is useful to illustrate it? And I got a certain way, and I sat down and looked at stuff with Anthony, and he said, "I think you're looking at this material in the wrong way." Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of recapping as much as I can remember, but the essence was he was saying, "You need to." Let the store the material tell the story. Let the material lead you, rather than you know. Sellers was this, did this, and then here's a bit of Sellers on stage, you know. And what that did 
was that it, it you started to look at the material more as happening inside Sellers' head. For example, there was a lot of stuff from the 50s. It was probably like Super 8, Standard 8, 16 mil, where Sellers would literally be driving, you know, he'd be in a car, maybe being driven, and he'd just film roads, you know, roads and bits of bits of nothing, really. I mean, stuff, if you'd shot it or if I'd shot it, it really would have no value, you know. Mm. But it's Peter Sellers, you know, it's Peter Sellers thinking that, you know, there's something here. And, and so what then happened was that as soon as you, 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 as soon as you saw the material like that, you could put it in, you could put some voice with it, you could put some music with it, you could start to tell a story of, of a man's view of the world. And I'm telling you that now, particularly as you know the films, but like if you see those films again, you'll see, you'll start to think, oh, right, okay, I see what Peter means. There's, you know, there's this, beautiful just you know just just see things that are quite ordinary that actually achieve a certain poetic quality uh, because of the way we're contextualizing it so one of the great strengths of your film many strengths of your film is the numerous interviewees which uh, you found and and, and that were uh, keen to, to speak to you um, and I'd love if you could, if we could just talk about those for a bit and, and share some of those memories have you got a Let's start by saying, was there a particular favourite interviewee that you uh, that you spoke to? Was there an experience that, that kind of really stood out to you? Seller's first wife, Anne, was a gold mine, you know, uh, in a beautiful way. She was a beautiful person and, and was just one of those people that's an egoless, generous, loving mother and obviously a loving wife who was able to look back at that experience for what it was, you know, one that was amazing and colourful and painful and in a way something that she was in the end glad to get out of, you know, she was a survivor because she was the only wife who did survive in that respect. Uh, Sorry, Brit, but, you know, in the sense that, you know, she built a life outside of the seller's, universe if you like mm. but she therefore had a very clear and and beautiful kind of way of looking at their lives together and of course there were fantastic material of the two of them and he loved her you know I mean it was a theirs was a love story and he did love her and I think he always regretted destroying it really mm-hmm. setting out to destroy it but he could not just in terms of the nature of the man and what was happening to him so she was a gold mine, and I loved uh, spending time with her. And her parts of the film are really important in terms mm. of, you know, she really saw him for what he was, and yet saw how wonderful he was at the same time. You know, so you couldn't have asked for more. So that's that. And then if you go to the other extreme, and uh, someone like Blake Edwards, Blake didn't want to be in the film. But I worked on him, you know. I mean, in in those days, working on somebody means sending them letters. <laughs> you know, it took a stud, and and I and I did, and I knew how important he was to the film, and and it was like to not have Blake Edwards is to not is is like to not have the the bride, you know, if that's the right analogy. But not, you know, it was a miss. It was a very very big component 
and uh, and eventually he, he he relented and said to me, you know, when when I met him in in Gestad, he said, yeah, you, you got me because you wouldn't let me go. And so I felt quite good about that. And then he just gave beautifully concise, uh, telling quotes. Things I'm sure things he's talked about before, but he just did it beautifully. And again, it's that, like a lot of those relationships, it was a love-hate relationship. You know, it was very tinged with darkness. And he saw Sellers as someone who sort of lived in hell and then brought that hell to other people. But he also recognised that he he was a sort of... Uh, he was a laugh, a laugh machine. You know, once the petrol, the right petrol's in the engine, he was a laugh machine. Mm. And we all know, you know, those clips still live today and and make us laugh. You know, my other podcast that I do is uh, a Beatles podcast, so it would be remiss of me not to have a uh, not to ask you a little bit about about George Harrison. Uh, yeah. Was 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 George keen to speak about Peter? Where was that interview? What was that yeah. like? he was really happy and such a lovely guy, you know, he, he, so basically, again, it was one of those things that he didn't necessarily have a, a strong connection to Sellers. His, his connection to Sellers was as a fan, you know, mm. and as a goons fan. And obviously the Beatles loved the goons and grew up the goons. And you can see that influence on their, on hard days night. And, and so he was more of a kind of cultural uh, witness uh, of the highest order, you know. So the idea with him, we were actually well into editing the film and therefore got him along to the edit suite to, to sit there and look at the material of, of sellers with them and remember meeting him, you know. And interestingly, obviously, you've seen the new series, which I've only part through part one, and it's phenomenal. Mm. Uh, I haven't got to the bit where Sellers turns up yet. Right, okay. But I understand he comes and doesn't say anything. He's very quiet. Well, yeah, they've, they've edited that. He says a little bit more in the, what's called the Nagra reels, the unedited audio. Um, but in this, yeah, I mean, he's, it's, it's, only a, it's only a very small yeah, part. He looks a little bit, I mean, he, he's there on the day that George Harrison, the day after George Harrison has left. Ah. So there's there's just so obviously the atmosphere is tense and Lennon's on this big Lennon's really kind of out there that day and he's doing all these strange surreal bits to camera and Sellers drops into that and looks a little with Dennis O'Dell I'm sure you know he's the film producer yeah, yeah. and yes yeah, Sellers looks a little bit lost and a little bit out of it um, but it's but it's just that visual thing of having Peter Sellers and the Beatles there which is, makes it worthwhile. Yeah. Other interviewees then uh, Spike and Harry. Uh, let's talk a little bit about his his fellow goons. They're interesting in the sense that they, particularly Spike, were friends throughout most of their most of Peter's life. Did you get a similar sense from them of what kind of man Peter was when they worked together? Well, I think what you what you get is that clearly Sellers and Milligan were really really tight. You know, they were they were genuinely close and had a sort of um, a kind of chemistry. And, and I think, you know, I think Peter Sellers as a funny man was always sort of at odds with himself. You know, as in, was he actually a funny man or was he only funny with funny material? And I think uh, Spike gave him was a sense that he could be a funny man with the right person. They, they, they gave each other permission 
to behave in a certain way. And I think he felt free with Milligan, and certainly in the past, you know, clearly there, there's a sort of phases in Seller's life where he was, he felt free and non-self-conscious. Non and then I think he became self-conscious so that when he revisited the goons and revisited Spike, it was probably a little bit more sort of like trying to turn the tap on, you know. Mm -hmm. And the difference is that, that Spike didn't, he didn't have an on-off, whereas I think for sellers it was harder to dig that stuff out. He could, but, and obviously Spike had his own kind of demons and, 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 and problems. Spike was a... A, a, a funny man through and through and and he opened his mouth and funny things came out whereas I think Sellers needed you know he needed permission he needed the sort of fuse that Spike brought to it to allow him to be the sort of conduit of Spike's humour in a way does that make mm. sense absolutely yeah fascinating uh, another one of my favorite interviews in the film Brian Forbes um, oh yeah what a wonderful perceptive interview and I mean the comments about Peter telling him that he was going to marry Lynette and uh, you know that was that was it what was it like speaking to him great with some of these people they've obviously spoken many times about sellers um, but the difference is they were they were speaking within the context of something that was trying to tell everything and you know what we had was you know we had Brian Forbes telling us you know what's what and then we had brian forbes sitting in an in archive with sellers and his wife and so it's it's it's, it's like here's the proof you know here's the story and here's the proof you know he look at that relationship between sellers and nanette it's there on film you know and and and, and forbes is sort of talking about it in a very light-hearted way but i'm sure that it wasn't easy you know i'm sure you know sellers was causing i mean it's interesting that that there was there's clear, there was clearly a sort of delusional part within Sellers' makeup, where having once he achieved a certain level of fame, it kind of made him think, gave him if it was like it gave him permission to behave in a certain way, you know, like like the whole absurd saga with Sophia Loren, you know, mm. same thing, and I think he was a funny man. He made people laugh laughter drew them to him they wanted to be in his sphere because of who he was because he was funny because he was a star and then he then projected something back onto the situation which led it to spiral out of control mm. one of the main kind of angles of the film that came out in 2019 that we, we spoke about off air uh, was seller's fractious relationship with his children now, in your film, there is uh, several scenes where Michael and Sarah are sat watching some of the home movie footage that was peppered throughout the film. Uh, was that an idea that you took to them? Was that something they wanted to do? How did they react when they were watching some of this footage? That was an idea I took to them. You know, it was just a kind of quite a good way to both use the footage and them at the same time and just create that sort of triangle them footage audience and and it worked really well you know mm. and obviously the other thing is they were sitting in the screening room of Elstead where Sellers 
first lived with Brit. So it was all very meta, really, <laughs> you know, and, and, and because they, I got them to, I obviously, I also filmed them within the grounds, looking around and relating to it. And, and, and because you sort of, you wanted to get all these layers, you know, life is long, you know, they, 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 it's a long, it was a long time since they'd been there. They spent a lot of time there at the time. So there was sort of all these kind of layers. And obviously Michael's journey and view was different to Sarah's. He's the son. It's a more painful process for him dealing with it, but, but also very interesting. And Sarah's sort of kind of once removed outside of it mm. and just goes, you know what? I'm kind of over it, but I'm happy to go there with you for the purpose of the film. Mm. Michael wasn't over it. He still sort of, he was still, in a sense, still getting through whatever it was that was unresolved, if you like, and, and the bitterness, the relationship. At that point, I don't know at that point whether Lynn Frederick had died. She died when we were making the film. Um, and obviously there was a lot of sadness and bitterness about what was left to them, you know, in the will and everything. Uh, and my last question on, in, on interviewees is you go to Elstead. Um, there's this very, very friendly, very nice English couple sat in the garden and they, and they tell this story where Sellers goes to the property and kind of lingers around the gate for a bit and then is let in to, to walk yeah. around. Did you just knock on the door and say, you know, did you want to speak about him or was that something that, that they came to you with or how did that come you know, happen? Well, I mean, they, I knew that we needed to visit his homes, you know, and so you had Chipperfield, you had Elstead, you had St. Fred's, you know, we needed to go to all those places uh, and because they're ghosts, you know, mm. and, and obviously when I got in touch with them, it wasn't hard and they, they knew what they what what was significant about the place, so they were very into it. I don't remember whether they told me the story on the phone or whether they told me the story there, but I knew I needed to hear this story because it's all part of those films. You know, it's all part of a man who is trying to construct a narrative of his life while he's living it, and and then constantly going back and thinking, where did it go wrong? You know. So music, we must talk about Andy Shepard's amazing music, which, which is, is used throughout your film. Did you have an idea of what kind of music you wanted to use when you started the film and how did you find Andy? Well, jazz was the obvious route because Sellers was a big jazz fan. He was, he was a good drummer, as we know, but he was big into jazz. And so I just went, I kind of made a lateral jump thinking okay I need to find someone to write a jazz score and Andy Shepard's music I didn't really know a, a lot about Andy's music at that point but his name came up and I started to listen to his stuff and thought well if he's up for it this would be great you know and he was it was a great opportunity so uh, and he and what was great was that he very quickly started putting together temp tracks uh, that I could use in the edit so I was able to I was able to start constructing sequences around his music before he then went back and in, went into the studio proper to record the actual you know soundtrack if you like. Mm. So that was a real gift. 
and uh, and I think he was very proud of the work. And I, I sort of lost touch with him really. And I keep thinking I must I must track him down. He's still out there playing and stuff, you know. The CD's available still. You can still get the, yeah. the CD. Yeah, I, I saw that actually. And uh, you know, I feel that he's in a way. I think he had a he's very talented, obviously. And 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 it felt like he should have done more film music because his compositional his compositions were great and the way he was able to reference the films and and the uh, the moods and you know whether it was pink panther or whatever it was just brilliant you mentioned earlier obviously the film is in three parts what was the most challenging kind of area of Sellers's life to, to document and to and to make into the film was there a particular part that was a real challenge to you i don't exactly remember but if i w- i would say it was probably the last part it was also the part that was the most powerful in a way, you know, but because you're trying to sort of, you, you, in most films, you know, the three act structure is, you know, set up big second act and denouement, but this is different, you know, because it's, because the third act in Seller's life is fascinating and tortuous, but it's got wonderful things in it, you know, like the fact that the sort of backbone of, of, of the third uh, act of his life has, has got being there and being there was his sort of salvation and it it told you that he was actually that there was an artist in there at least someone who understood what a piece of art could be uh, and, and went after it with a kind of doggedness which was extraordinary and um and it and it and it redeemed him in a funny sort of way Whereas he was still doing, he was still taking the easy way out with things like Fu Manchu and in a sense still harking back to his kind of goon days to create these things that just had no place in the world in some ways. Yeah, I know the the, the Clouseau films were much loved, but they they were very scrappy, you know, as they went on. And, and you know, you could see, you could feel the struggle that Blake had to kind of carve out these stories uh, out of the sort of moments when Sellers was giving him 100% as opposed to, you know, minus 20%. You mentioned earlier that he used those 70s Panther films as like a safe option. The second part of your film ends where, as you say, he's maybe the most successful actor on, you know, uh, in in Hollywood at that point. The heart attack is a key thing in in 64 or 65. Yeah. What happened? Why did he end up doing? I mean, some of those early seventies films um, were a, a barely shown, not available, you know, on home release and stuff. What happened? Do you think that meant that he had that fame and that success started to elude him? Well, so let's think. We, you know, he, he obviously had a kind of home run with Panther, with Shot in the Dark, with uh, Doctor Strange Love, which put him in a kind of put him on the on a pantheon. Mm. And 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 out of that came kind of curios, but interesting curios like After the Fox, yeah, yeah, and various int- quite interesting films, but none of them really kind of hit the. None of them really got him any further forwards, and also I think what you saw in all those films is there was trouble, 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 because he would get Brit in, and and then they fell out, trouble because he had power to be difficult with a director like he, you know, his dream to work with someone like Visconti in Italy with Brit and, and it became a nightmare. The film actually is quite fun 
anyway, so so there's a certain point, you know, and obviously the film of um, Casino Royale is possibly it is genuinely one of the worst films you'll ever see. It, it has no redeeming qualities. You know, it's not even you don't even watch it and think it's so bad it's good. It yeah. isn't. Is it really, you know? And, and and so it's quite an achievement. It's quite an achievement to get people to spend that much money on something so bad and to behave so badly. And in a way, you know, just to drive various nails into his own coffin so that he then comes out of the out of that period into the 70s as a as a failure and with nowhere to go other than finally to kind of revisit Clouseau. So the the film in, I think, I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, 2002, a new version of the film comes out, which is made up entirely of Sellers' home home movies with the audio of your interviews. Was that something you were involved in or was that something that was done independently from you? Or I was involved in it in a sort of consultancy way. Basically what happened was they couldn't run the documentary anymore because the film, because of all the rights to the films and all that sort of stuff. So the film, it was too expensive. And so, so Anthony had an idea of just of stripping down into this lean thing with just the interviews and just the, 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 the film footage. And I think it was a really interesting experiment. And, mm. and it's a, you know, it's not the film I made, but it's still a, a kind of an enjoyable, in fact, it, it went to a quite, I actually went with it to quite a few festivals and, and, and talked about the experience and stuff. I, 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 I wasn't interested in, in, in being hands-on in that experience. I just left it up to Anthony, really. There is some footage in that that's not in your film, isn't there? There's a few bits, I think, of home movie, um, obviously a home movie footage that's not in yours. So it's definitely worth owning yes. uh, listeners yeah, yeah. As, sure. a, as a companion to your what, original what, what, film. What footage, do you remember what footage... I can't, I can't. I think, is there more? I feel like there's more of the Princess Margaret okay. footage. Let me think. So what's interesting about that is that, and there's a piece I wrote in Sight and Sound, actually, about going to LA to interview a number of people, including Mel Brooks, hmm. and, um, and going to uh, visit Lynn Frederick's mother, who was at that point the sort of, I mean, so bizarre. She ends up being the keeper of the estate and she herself is not in a good way. I mean, she's, um, you know, I, I, I reached out to her and established a kind of relationship which allowed me to go in and meet her and, 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 and talk my way into the garage. <laughs> and it, and in that garage was was actually is like a Aladdin's cave, a cellar's Aladdin's cave, you know. And it was in there that I found more Super 8 footage of the royal, you know, a lot a lot more stuff, which was actually quite interesting. You realise how much time Sellers and Brit spent with them, you know, in Scotland or wherever it was. And 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 I think it, a lot of it didn't really fit into our story, but it was very interesting to find. And I think that, but the most interesting thing was actually finding audio stuff that Sellers had done, you know, on his little, was it, was it a Nagra or whatever it was, you know, and he recorded stuff on Pool when he was making Dr. Strangelove. Mm. He was recording interviews with people and he did one with Ouija. Yeah. So everyone knows this now, but what was interesting was that I found the tape where he's talking to Ouija and Ouija's got this voice that he then steals 
for uh, Dr. Strangelove. And it was like proof, you know, whatever it was, my case rests. This is the voice of Dr. Strangelove. It's Ouija. And I mean, Silas says so himself, but, mm. but to actually have him talking to Ouija on this audio is great. Absolutely. And also to find stuff of him interviewing Mel Brooks. And Mel Brooks had forgotten. He'd forgotten that he'd even met Sellers, right? He'd completely forgotten. And when I and I went to see him and reminded him, and then it kind of came back, you know. Mm. And then he told me, and I might be telling you things you already know, but he then told me that he had offered Sellers the part of, in the producers. And and again, I think that 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 this was a kind of a new information in a way. Mm. We all knew that Sellers loved the producers and he sort of obsessed about it and had screenings of it. But we didn't know at that point that he'd been offered the part, mm. you know. I mean, to me, that was like, whoa, it was, that was what the exciting thing about making the film was making these discoveries, you know. So to edge toward a conclusion, how do you feel? I mean, so what are we now, 26 years since the film was released? Uh, more since you started to work on it how do you feel about the film now in in 2021 well i think it's in a funny sort of way it sort of come it, it keeps coming back to life and i think it's the nature of our times where we where we can see everything everything's out there uh when i made it i made it it went on bbc that was it you know mm. you, you, if you did if you missed it maybe you could have done a vhs recording yeah. of it if you, you know you had that but you sort of it didn't really it didn't continue to have a life it had a life in terms of awards and stuff and i think that then it sort of came back to life once everyone could revisit things and there was a a guy who uh, there was some I, I sort of realized about five six years ago and some guy who has some tumblr thing podcast type thing who sort of found that I had it on my site and then started telling everyone about it at that point. I can't remember who he was now, but you know what I mean? I'm saying yeah. that I realised I had a resource here, something that was important at the time and that I, there are certain moments when I can revisit it and take pieces out of it. And like when the thing happened last year, I kind of rode on the coattails of that and told people about that while telling people that, oh, by the way, I made this film, you know. Yeah. And so I'm really proud of it. I'm very proud of it. And I think it still stands up, you know. Mm, absolutely. I think uh, one of the, the talking about its relevance to today, Peter Hall, the great Peter Hall's line in the film, it's not enough to have talent. You've got to have talent to handle the talent, which obviously is relevant to sellers. I think is relevant and it's been even more relevant in the last 25 years of of celebrity or, or fame. I think that's such a key a key line in your film. Yeah. Yes, yes, no, that's interesting. But I think Sellers was one of those early people who, who transitioned from one level of fame to another. You know, and I think, I think nowadays people, it's much easier for people to know how to deal with it mm. in a way, you know, if they want to. Not to say it can't go horribly wrong, and uh, but I think that back then it was you, you were kind of left to your own devices, and it's like it's like with the, the watching the Beatles thing again. It's you know the Beatles. If you, it, when you see those guys in that room, you think, wow, they are the most four of the most famous people in the world, but they all seem very grounded and sane because they have each other. Mm. You know? 
And that was interesting. And I think when you're sellers, you had no, you know, you, you, you kind of jettisoned your kids, you jettisoned your wife, you jettisoned all the things that kind of defined you as this child of the 50s or 40s. And suddenly you're just this famous entity trying to feed off nothing. Well, it's a, it's a fine way to end our conversation. We should say as well that the film is available in full on your website. Am I, am I correct? Um, you are. Whether, <laughs> whether I'm allowed to. <laughs> but I think there's an element of, I think with those things, it's like this guy explained to me when he was putting it on his website. He said it's, there's a kind of public, there's still a kind of public domain commons thing you're allowed to, um, for educational purposes or whatever it is, you know. Educational, it, it certainly is for any goon or any sellers fan. So uh, hopefully our conversation will have inspired many more people to go and, and enjoy your film. Um, so all we have to say is, Pete Lyland, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Good to meet you. Thanks so much to Peter and to Joe. And I'm sure you agree it makes perfect, almost sort of like a DVD extra to accompany the episode we put out in November. Uh, that episode and all the 30 plus other shows are all available to be listened to now. So uh, please check it out if you haven't already. So I guess all that remains to be said is um, Happy New Year. I guess most of us will be having a fairly low key uh, celebration tonight, New Year's Eve. Um, but um, you know, I look forward to seeing you next year. Bye. <laughs>